I'm the mother. I know my body. I know my instincts. This is how it is. Not yeah. many people have the strength to do that. And that's what's hard. And then, and then you end up living with regret a little bit, don't you? Because you, you think back and think, well, why did I let her do that? Why did do I that. go to the toilet? Why? I knew I didn't need to go. Why did I go? Because you trust them. And that is, I think so many women experience that. And it's that after bit, I think, as well, which is important. Don't, you can't allow yourself to feel that guilt because yeah. this is how we are taught to trust the professionals. They know more than us. They know better than us. But I genuinely believe now after what I've been through, that's not always the case. Yeah. And then, and then I do also think, you know, what was lucky about the situation is I could have said, because I remember my fear was having to go up and down the stairs and thinking, oh, I'm going to get a contraction in the middle of it. And I've got, we've actually got a toilet outside in the garden, just like a little off the thing of the garden. And my ex-husband was saying to me, I'll maybe just go down here so you don't have to go down the stairs. And then I thought to myself, no, let me just go upstairs. And it's a lucky thing because if the same thing had happened outside, I would have given birth to her out on the concrete. Yeah. I don't actually know what, you know, what could have happened um, with that. But yeah, I think that that story or that, you know, like my last birthing story, you're right. If it had happened as my first, I just would have not wanted to have another child. And I think my, my, my continuing experience with the NHS um, and other government bodies that are set up to uh, help children um, has since then gone downhill. And I think uh, I was saying that obviously with my daughter, so my daughter had, is special needs. She has a, um, a condition called ACO2 related cerebellar and retinal degeneration. Um, which is a long name yeah, because really we only is. discovered the condition in 2012. So it's relatively new, I guess. I, um, if I'm really honest, I still have doubts about the reality of that being her condition, really, just because of how she's presented. Um, she had no issues at birth. So in the sense of when they did the score again, you know, they do the ADPAR score, they do all of that. And in all of her tests and all the things that she had up until she was about three months, there was absolutely nothing to show that there was anything wrong. Okay. The layer at all. When um, did things start to present themselves? How old was she? She was about three to four months when I noticed that she wasn't sitting up anymore. She was flopping more to the side, whereas before she had been sat sitting up. Um, and if I'm honest, it was after she had the first lot of booster injections, the, 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 um, after she had the, what do you call those things? Vaccinations. Yeah. <laughs> yes. The immunizations. That's the one. After she had those, um, that, that was when we noticed the changes. So the first thing was the flop into the size. And I remember I took her to the GP and the GP kept trying to sit her up and she kept falling over. And I'm like, and she's not crawling. I'm just noticing that some of the things that she should be starting to do, she doesn't seem to be doing. And I remember they sent a referral to, to the pediatricians for us. Um, and so we were waiting for that. It wasn't for a couple of months. There was a waiting list. You know, they were like, oh, not, not to worry about it. She just might need to catch yeah. up and all of that type of thing. Um, and then one day, one evening, she started to get tremors. And so she you imagine she's a baby? She's probably about five months now, something around there, five, six months. And she's 
lying down and she's literally her body's like that, 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 her tongue is going every muscle that that, 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 that must that, have been so scary is what she did so we've obviously immediately thought that she's having an epileptic fit of some description and so we videoed her and I remember we went to A&E we went to A&E and they were like they did the test you know to see whether she was having epilepsy what was happening they couldn't find anything wrong they wasn't sure why she was tremoring and then it just kind of stopped and so we then got a referral to so this is all before the pediatrician referral had come through so I say all of that to say they gave us a pediatrician referral for about four months ahead and in the meantime she's got the tremors which has escalated things we've now gone to neurology at at Great Ormond Street and I'm, I'm saying that because parents are coming and saying to you that their children are behind they're not hitting milestones and you give them an appointment four months later when more milestones should have been hit that wouldn't have been hit and I think it's 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 all of that type of when they believe that nothing's wrong even though like we were saying before the parents are saying there's something wrong yeah um so we've gone to Great Ormond Street they've done all of these tests she's had two lumbar punctures she's got remember this is a baby she's about you know that I mean for anyone who doesn't know what a lumbar puncture is they're basically sticking a needle in your child's back and that that happened to my son when he was two and a half weeks old and it is so scary and not very nice for any parent to have to watch their child go through no yeah you're basically drawing fluid from their spine to see what's going on in their brain so um and she had two of those they did loads of blood tests they did like muscle prick tests that she went through over the the course of the next few months muscle prick tests where they put stick pins in her muscles and and put electric shocks in there to see what the reaction is and to see what the so it's all of this stuff that was happening to her where they were trying to test they then started to do genetic tests I cannot count the amount of times my ex-husband and I were asked if we were related and we were asked that question because they thought that it was a genetic thing and what can happen in people of colour is that we can marry our cousins apparently and our families and so therefore have children with disabilities now again when we talk about the whole cultural thing that's what really gets my goat I was going to swear but let's just say gets my goat um that you know you see one culture and something might happen in that culture and then it automatically spreads to to other people and other cultures and I know that they might have said that there are certain communities where they do marry or have children with quite close relatives and so there is a high instance of disabilities in some of those communities yeah yeah Uh, Yeah. but just because I'm also not white doesn't mean that we and and Caribbeans, we don't marry our family, no. And as far as I know, Africans also don't marry their direct family. So I'm not really sure why, but I literally was asked that question and I said, no, we're from two totally separate Caribbean islands. We have no relatives in common. Apart from the fact of, I said to him, maybe we had, <laughs> I remember one time I said to him, because I was so pissed peed off with them asking me that question, that I was in hospital and I said, oh, maybe we had the same slave owner. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 it, I wonder if if you wasn't someone of colour, if they would have asked you that question and if they'd asked you that many times. I mean, because 
yeah. the queen and her husband were cousins just putting it out exactly there. exactly that and and i i feel that i don't think that we would have because i remember them asking where we were from heritage wise and if you had two white english people in front of you you wouldn't have needed to ask that question to then say are you related or is there a chance that you could be related anyway we went through all of that they couldn't find a diagnosis for her. They didn't know what was wrong. They didn't know how to treat it. And it was the same, you know, like the normal things going into physio and all of that. By this time, some of the other symptoms had developed. So when she was about, just after she was one, because I remember we christened her when she was one, it was her first birthday and her eyes were completely straight. In the next couple of months after that, they started to go out. So she has a squint now or cross eye or, you know, whatever way you okay. want to call like it. a lazy eye. Yeah, we started to notice her eyes shaking. She then got diagnosed as partially sighted. So basically her optic nerve is underdeveloped. So she's got what's called a pale optic nerve, which means that she can't really see. So she will hold things really close to her eyes like this. The sun bothers her a little bit as well. A little bit like an albino, I guess. Um, One eye is worse than the other. Um, And then she has a constant slight tremor. I don't know if you can see, it's like a a slight tremor that she has. She um, uh, has coordination issues. So coordination and balance. So um, she used to have to have a helmet on all the time at school because she falls over quite often. She, not so much now, but she used to fall over quite o- often. She didn't walk until she was about six. So she, was, um, she wasn't walking before that. She was crawling. Um, she uh, is globally delayed as well. So she's cognitively delayed. Although Alea understands absolutely everything. It's about the self-expression and more of... Um, I guess understanding academic quite st- okay. things so she's not like you know with that but you could she she makes jokes and jokes that make sense she understands all of that type of thing uh, she teases her sisters she you know she can interact with the family and all of that and you know and I'm so I always say and again this is another thing which is where I advocate I always say that I advocate for parent carers in the workplace because People don't realise um, what you're dealing with when you have a child with special needs. Because it's not just about their day to day and about their need and, and having to cater for that and, 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 and all of But it's also you are living in a living in a life where you are always frightened of the future. So as much as you might be, you know, for my other children, it's like my 18 year old, she's about to go to uni and my eldest is in uni and she's got her own place now and she's driving. And then I've got my 14 year old that's coming up to be doing her GCSEs and she knows what she wants to do and all the rest of it. But it's a layer that I'm constantly like, will she be happy? Who's going to look after her? How is she? And all so you know there's there's also the guilt of worrying about how she's going to impact my life as I get older and I age as well and it's all of these things that people that uh parents of children that have got disabilities that people don't think about and it's a lot of things that we keep inside we keep inside that worry we keep inside that regret we keep inside that wishing things were different we keep inside all of those those things because we love our children. It's nothing about not loving them yeah. or not wanting them to be here, but we just 
wish that things were different for them and we wish yeah. that things were different for our family um and so yeah it's kind of I am grateful that I had the means because I was professional because I kept working and and all the rest of it to be able to um pay for different therapies for her and help for her and, and bits and pieces and also that I have the wherewithal to be able to fight for things I've had to take my local authority to tribunal twice about the school that they wanted to place her in and won and I'm at the moment again in a in a silent battle with them because they are sending her to a school that is miles and miles away from home without any contingency plans for me in my position as a, as a single mother and as a single professional working mother. Um, a lot of parents of disabled children, they have at least one parent that stays at home. So because of that, all of the, you know, pick up from school, if there's an emergency, if there's all of those types of things, there's somebody on hand and I don't have that luxury um and so at the moment I'm in a silent battle with them because I'm like I'm not agreeing that she's going to this school until I know what's going to happen if there's an emergency how she's going to access after school clubs and things like that because she shouldn't have to miss out because you sent her to a school so far away um and so it's not it's not just about having a child with disabilities and all that comes with that and I also am you know can say that there are parents out there that have it a lot harder than me, like children that are, you know, wheelchair bound, they're nonverbal, they're not able to respond, they have health concerns. Luckily, touch wood, Alea doesn't have um, health concerns. If she gets ill, she gets that tremoring thing and she can't move or walk or do anything for a while. It takes her a while to recover from things. But other than that, she's healthy, she eats and drinks normally. I, you know, we don't have any of that type of thing. Um, but there are parents who are literally living in fight or flight daily. Yeah, I would say that's exactly what I was just thinking when you were speaking. Like, you know, you're in that high adrenaline state constantly and it's yeah. not going to be any good for your body uh, or your mind, especially over long periods of time. And then it can, can give, cause physical problems as well, yes. not just emotional. And I, I, I do agree that often the parents are forgotten about. People look at the children and think, oh, you know, and feel, and, and I feel sorry for them. And yeah. I think sometimes a child, if they're born in it with a certain condition, they don't know any, any, any difference. So that yes. is their life and that's what they're used to how they're living and that's how they grow up learning to live. Whereas a parent has to change so much in their life and adjust. They're not used to that. And it, and I, it could be argued that it has a greater impact emotionally on the parent than the child. Yeah, and I think so, because the child is always being looked after, you know, in the sense that, as you say, their life is their life and you find out the things that makes them happier within their life and they don't necessarily understand they don't understand what that means for them in the future and we don't really understand I don't understand I don't know what that's going to look 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 like so all I can do is as much as possible um, and that is why I work all of the hours God sends and I do so many things and I have so many streams of income part of that yes it's for my other children but it's really to make sure that whatever happens I want to be able to set a layer up and and that she's going to be okay whether I'm here or I'm not here and also for her to have the best experiences that she can have growing up yeah, and I that and are I, available to her and that are available to her yeah exactly that um and how so you, yeah sorry, sorry go ahead I'm interrupting you but how, how for you to, to me listening to this this is a, this is a huge thing and there's 
trauma after trauma after trauma after trauma. It's not just the birth was traumatic. No, everything you've discovered since is traumatic because it's your child. It doesn't matter who you are. If your child is at risk or is unsafe or you're concerned or you don't know what's happening, that impacts you. So you literally are dealing with trauma after trauma after trauma. And I know from the research I've done from what I've gone through, how that physically impacts you, let alone emotionally. Like, How have you, what are your coping strategies? How have you got through life? Because she's 11 now. So, you know, and, and I haven't, even, I so haven't even gone into the domestic violence and uh, being attacked and uh, sexually assaulted by my ex-husband in front of Alea when she couldn't talk, couldn't walk, couldn't speak and her crawling into the kitchen to try to stop her dad from attacking me. And that was how I got to escape. I haven't even spoken about that and how much of an impact she has had on my life in terms of that. Um, But I think for me, it's just about being determined that we are all here for a reason. I think that's my outlook is everything that's happened. I believe that there's a reason for it. And so I need to find where I can use that experience to create an impact, a better impact for somebody else, a better impact for me, a better impact for the rest of my children. And that we just can't give up because what does that mean? You know, uh, allowing, allowing my trauma to dictate my life in a negative way is something that I have really had to come. And I've been through my periods of being slumped in a chair and not moving and not being able to cope with things and feeling really overwhelmed and all of the rest of it. But then I think, you know, I'm an only child for my mum anyway. And I think growing up with my grandparents, nothing was ever conventional for me. Nothing was ever smooth sailing throughout my life. Nothing has ever been through smooth smooth sailing. And I just kind of, I think that it's about really focusing on how you can use your pain as you have in order to either serve someone else or make things better for your family. Because actually, if we look at it from a logical point of view, there's no other choice. Yeah. And, and, you know, I thought of it, I could be here and be depressed and be slumped in my chair, but then what happens? Does does anything change for me? How do I do something that's going to change for me? And I realise that not everybody's as pragmatic as I am. And I think, you know, I am quite a pragmatic person, quite a logical person. But I think it's about people knowing that there are hundreds and hundreds of people that have gone through a similar or the same experience to you and that they got through it. And so there must be support out there that perhaps you can access or that there is a way that you can get to that other place. Yeah, uh, definitely. Your, your mind, your mind can be amazing and work in mysterious ways. And yes. it's sometimes it could be argued that it is a choice, but it's a very, very difficult choice. And I think it's a, I personally find it hard. It's a hard choice to stay positive and to be. It's easier to be negative and to yes. slump into that funk. Um, and that's what I call it when I have my down days. And I do have down days. I have good yeah. days. I have bad days. Um, but I've learned to stop fighting the down days so much and allow them to happen but don't dwell in them if that makes yeah. sense and you know and use the energy the positive try and take what positive so for me for example and to acknowledge the down times and why you're feeling like that yes yeah. <coughs> yeah, yeah to acknowledge what the reason is I think if you can give 
a reason as to why you should be feeling like that. And okay, so this is why I feel like this and I understand it and I, I have a right to feel how yeah. I'm feeling. But, it, and, and then it's about once you've come through that process, it's about, okay, so how do I want to feel tomorrow? And how do I want to feel the next day? And really setting a, a, an intention about how you want to feel. And then when the emotions come and wash over you, you let them happen and you're like, okay, so I've done that. I know why this has happened. But again, you turn back to, so how do I want to now feel? And just keep bringing yourself back to that place is what I would say. Yeah, I think um, I think anyone that's listening to this and listening to your story and what you've gone through and like I said, you've only just touched on a little bit. I know that I can see there's so much more that needs to come out or maybe it come out one day, but that <coughs> you've triumphed so much. So, you know, it can be done. You're yes. living proof of it. It can yeah. be done. Yeah, yeah. I'm really happy to be part of this podcast, really happy to share my story. And I, I really can't wait for people to start to engage with this and for people to hear what we are sharing and to give let them give that the courage to be able to share their own stories and to, to look at what's happening to them and not brush it under the carpet and know that it's not something that had to happen. It's not, you know, it's not some things are not right and you should be angry about it and you should be upset about it you should be able to mourn you should be able to grieve all of those things yeah no 100 percent. and you know don't we don't have like you said we don't have to be defined by our trauma you know we can we can take what we want what we can from it and turn it into a, a positive so like i always look at for me the turning point was on uh, zion's first birthday and i was up the cemetery and and i remember telling my arguing myself that I need to find something positive I need to I need to be happy I need to learn to you know carry on living and it came to me it Zion gave me Marley his presence to me was Marley and that's how I look at it now I, yeah. if it wasn't for Zion I wouldn't have Marley, Marley. and he it was it was it, he was a gift he, Marley's my rainbow baby if anyone didn't hear the last one yeah but yeah he he was my gift and so that's the positive I take from that because uh, I mean, yeah, like you, I've had a few traumatic births, so um, I don't know how far I'd have carried on. Kept yeah. going. I've, I've had and four, also, I, I think with Zion, it's it's all of this that's coming from it. It's you know the the conversations that you're now having to have with the hospital. It's what the changes will be off the back of that. It's having this podcast and being able to share share your story with other people who may not have the support that you had to be able to get you know to come through it as far as you have been able to and I think that you know that's part of Zion's gift as well yeah 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 because I mean I'm I've had to fight in every single corner and I'm still fighting now uh, yeah. but, and I will continue to fight because I, I genuinely believe in what's right and that's the one thing that Zion's given me is conviction never again will I ever let anybody tell me what I should be doing and go against my own instincts never again yeah. will that happen yeah yeah yeah, no. yeah. but um there was just one more thing that I don't know what to say. just to summarize it so you've had the four, four children and you know you've gone through a lot and yes. is, it was that is it just the four pregnancies you've had or is it been other? um yeah no so I've had a miscarriage uh that happened a few years back now probably about four years ago four five years ago and um 
I also had a pregnancy just after my eldest daughter. So with her, with her dad as well. And um, that I made the choice to terminate at that time because I just wouldn't have been able to cope with things. And yes, we did use contraception um, before anybody wonders, um, but it didn't work, which seems to happen with me. It's like that, a common um, theme with you, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so do you mind if I ask you about that, about your miscarriage and how that impacted you? Yeah, so... I think for me, so it's with a partner, the partner that I'm with now. Um, and but it, it was very new in our relationship as well, very early in our relationship. And so I had fallen pregnant, and obviously, this is after my fourth <laughs> child. Um, and so it was that whole conversation about, you know, what are we gonna do, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But then I went for a scan and it was a boy. And so I was just like mega excited and, you know, just like happy for that to happen. Um, And then I think I'd gone into the hospital because I was an older mum or they considered me to be an older mum. I think I was going into the hospital for something. And when they went to um, do the check, I think I was going to have a thing. I was bleeding at the time and I hadn't noticed yet it would had already happened and they were like let's check yeah, they did the scan and then they saw that the heartbeat had gone um and I think for me it was just a shock because I hadn't lost children yeah in that way um and so you know for me as I said I'd just been swanning through life like oh having babies that's easy I don't even have to try if I I think to myself oh I'm gonna get pregnant I'm pregnant that's kind of how it had been and so for me it was like what are you talking about (laughs) you know like how is there uh, no heartbeat like I don't understand that's never something in fact my children survived through everything it seems because I was using contraception and there I was yeah Um, and then it was that whole process and, and I think that I had to take a tablet to uh bring the baby out and I, you, I i'm a very if you know me i'm a very squeamish person i don't like blood i don't really like violence if i watch things i'm just like this all the time <laughs> so that whole experience was the most traumatizing thing for me having to sit there give birth to what you know is your child in a bucket i think it was it was like a it was a thing i was in the okay. hospital they kept me in the hospital to do it like a bedpan yet yeah. That was can I, how can I ask how many weeks you were? Not that it makes a difference, I don't think, but yeah, yeah, about 15, just so before quite, 15. Quite a late miscarriage, then, yeah. And I obviously, and that was why I had the shock that I had because I'd gone past that 12 week period when everything's meant to be okay and so there I was and I'd only gone in for this extra scan because of my age. I think I don't know whether they were going to do an amniocentesis. It might have been that. I can't remember. Um, but I know that I had to have, um, they were doing an internal scan for whatever the reason was. Okay. Um, I think as well, because I had had some fibroids before or something. So I think they were just trying to make sure it weren't okay. in the way of the baby and all of that. Um, so, yeah. And then to get for that to happen and then to go back to my partner and kind of explain, because we had a plan for a baby. We didn't want one. But then at that point, I now wanted one because I'd lost. Yeah, and and, and especially because he was a boy as well. And especially you because he was a boy. boy. Yeah, I know that exactly feeling. that. Um, and so I think 
for me now, I obviously still haven't had my boy. Now I'm going through menopause. And I think stress was a lot to do with that as well. And I think overuse of contraceptions over the years, I think there's been a lot of things that have caused me to go into early menopause. It doesn't run in my family. Um, although I'm the only child of my mums that lived. So I think people were quite surprised that I was as fertile as I was because infertility or fertility issues run in my family on both sides. My aunts oh, okay. or my dad's and also on my in my mum's side. So all the rest, the child before me was stillborn and then my mum had several miscarriages as well. Oh, okay. She'll cuss me if she know I'm talking her business here on the podcast. <laughs> but um, maybe we need to get her on the podcast. <laughs> we'll get her on the podcast. Yeah, she would be a good one to have on the podcast. Yeah, because when she's pregnant with me, she was told to drink Guinness for iron, and um, and then she went to it. There's a man in the church that was like a, a a naturopath, like a medicine healer, and he gave her some kind of tea, and then here I was. I am. Um, no, and so he, growing up in church, he always used to call me his daughter because of that reason. And I think that there is something in natural medicine when it comes to some of those things as well. So I but say, I think you live in I had an issue with like what you had where the cervix would open up. So I think they put a stitch in with me as well for her. Oh, okay. So yeah. So um yeah, that's I guess the majority of my story there, really. Well, I mean, that's a story to tell, to be honest. Like, I'm in awe of you, I'm not going to lie, because you've been through so much, and yet you're still so successful in multiple careers, and you give back. Trying my best. Yeah. You're, so you're giving back, which to me is so important as well. Um, but I just don't know how you find the time to do all of it. I really don't. Uh, and you know what? It's so funny. My girls are so good. Um you know, like with being able to manage themselves and cook in and when I'm away. And then my mum is still, you know, as I'm the only child for my mum, there's no other grandchildren. I don't have to compete with anybody for babysitting. And so my mum's 73 now. Um, again, she's going to cast me for taking her age out on the <laughs> podcast. Um, so, yeah, so she kind of, she comes in and out and she helps with the children when she can. So like, for example, Alea, she's got tonsillitis now, but I was coaching on Thursday afternoon and I thought she's had this sore throat for days and days and days. And also a lot of children with special needs have really high pain thresholds. And I thought she's saying she's got a sore throat, but she's not crying about it. She's not like, she's still able to eat, but maybe not as much. I said, I, so I said to mum, oh, can you, if I drop you down to the hospital with her, can you just sit with her for the hundred hours that you're going to have to sit in A&E um, and while I coach? And so she went and did it. And the, the doctor went to pick them up. The doctor said to me, how has she been eating and drinking? Because her both of her tonsils are very swollen. They've both got, you know, like they get those little white things on them when you, they're in full yeah, the poison. I mean, he doesn't know. And I said, because Alea is so used to being fiddled with painful things, things happening to her that I think, she just sort of takes it all in her stride. She obviously takes now, off her mother. Which is sad, yeah. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, that's where we are. So um, I, I do have support, not as much as I would like. I don't have much support from their dad. Um, but, you know, I've just had to work, how to, my eldest daughter is here now, she drives, so sometimes she helps out with bits and pieces as well when she's not working. So yeah, I do have a lot of support and they have grown up to be quite independent. Like, you know, I say with the sleeping thing, I, I am quite a strict parent. I don't just let it all, like, now it's different. Now we're like friends. I went out with them on Saturday <laughs> night. I was like, oh my God, we're at a party together. This is amazing. <laughs> 
Um, so with my two eldest ones. Um, but yeah, so I was I was quite strict. And I think um, they've just, and I tell them all the time, I don't care what happens with your friends, with anything outside, your sisters are always your priority. No matter what argument you have, no matter what happens, you always need to, oh, you four are the only people that's going to care about you four in that way. And me, yeah, that's unconditionally, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I agree. I tell, I tell my girls all the time that like, your friends are your friends, but your sister's there for life. And yeah. you know, if someone's hanging off the edge of a cliff, your sister's gonna save you first before they save everybody else. So yes. you know, you always look after each other. Family is family is important. Uh, yeah. But Dawn, I just want to say thank you so much. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this with me. First off. And thank you for telling your story as well. It's an amazing story and I can't wait for people to hear it. Um, and it's very brave. It's so brave of you to tell me as well. You know, like I, said, I know there's certain bits you, you've touched on um, and even just to touch on it, it. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that because I know it's not easy. So thank you. Thank you so much. And I'm sure there'll be many stories that will come out as on our journey on this podcast. So, yeah, thanks so much for having me and I will see you soon. <laughs> <laughs>